Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Yes, it is something different. For those of you who are watching on a video on YouTube or another platform, but I thought I'd do a little intro for those of you who are listening in audio, which is really a majority of the audience for Aeon Byte. And for those of you watching, yes, I did cut myself last night while shaving, which seems to happen uh, only when I have to do some video recording. Thanks, Yaldi Baldi. Thanks. But anyway, uh, it's a great honor and pleasure to have Rodney Asher for this show to discuss his great documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix. Um, I really love uh, Rodney's work. I remember watching his uh, other documentary, Room 237, many moons ago, and it blew my mind. It was sort of a red pill into the world of uh, conspiracy theory and, and synchromysticism. Um, and, really, uh, para, you know, paranormal activity, uh, you, you name it, the esoterica in general. And uh, by red pill, and I've discussed this before on the show, it uh, taught me that, yes, there are things we don't know about. There are conspiracies or alternative avenues to the reality we've been given. But the important thing is really the journey within. Uh, when I watched that documentary, it ignited a lot of uh, inner energies within me, archetypal forces, symbolism, and so forth. So I always tell people to, whenever you uh, feel ignited by the narrative of, of a conspiracy theory, to, uh, to look inward, make it an inner process too. What's going on within you that this conspiracy theory or other subject uh, um, sparked your interests and got you going on, a, on this path of uh, discovery? And of course, this can happen too with when you read a great nonfiction book or a fiction book or something. What is going on with you in your inner universe that uh, that sent you on this path? And uh, what changes and transformations can you go through as you go down the rabbit hole? I mean, as I mentioned before, too, when you're following conspiracy theories and so forth, uh, it's never going to be 100% settled out there in the real world. But uh, something new and different and better can come about in your inner world, and you can find out a lot about yourself. Sometimes I call it uh, conspiracy therapy because, uh, again, that's what it is. And really, that's what it should be. What's going on and how you can uh, make a difference in your life, in your world, and, uh, and again, grow from it. So, and I certainly feel the same way with uh, Rodney's A Glitch in the Matrix, which I think you will enjoy a lot. Another reason I wanted to do it this way is, uh, and Rodney will talk about it, is that if you watch A Glitch in the Matrix, you see it has that sort of Zoom feeling, that internet gritty look to it. And uh, I wanted to do the same with, uh, with well, with the interview. I wanted to just show it in a Zoom format, record it on video, throw some graphics out there, and just show it to the world. Uh, so I hope you appreciate why I'm doing this. And as I like to say, too, uh, 
Variety is the spice of gnosis. So I like to change things up here and there um, for your entertainment, for, to engage you better, and just to, well, serve you better with that variety. So I hope you enjoy what I'm doing. And uh, as always, please support this venture. I don't take advertisers. Uh, I only take, uh, well, I only take the support of you kind patrons and AV Prime supporters and so forth. And there's a lot of exciting shows also coming out this May on a variety of topics. Jungian dream work, uh, uh, the occult in American politics, the Cathars, Mary Magdalene, and some other really good stuff. So thanks for making it happen. And thank Thanks for being here, being yourself here in the desert of the real. Yeah, being yourself, your true self. Forgot about that part. But, um, well, enough of my drivel. Let us to our interview with Rodney Asher on his great new documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix. This is the A.M. Byte interview, and with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by Rodney Asher to discuss his documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix. Rodney, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, of course. Good to talk to you, Miguel. Thank you. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing in the simulation? Oh, I'm pretty good. I think this uh, copy one of the simulation is running fine. There you go. Or as <laughs> Philip K. Dick said, if you think this universe is bad, it's been running through my head all day, too. Like, God, I wish you had said others. that. <laughs> all the others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Rodney, uh, I really enjoyed your documentary. I've enjoyed all your documentaries. They're uh, incredible. They've uh, informed my views and made me really look at the world differently, which all you can ask of a, of, of a viewer. So, uh, great job, but uh, what uh, I'm surprised that there isn't like 50 of these uh, documentaries because the simulation theory is so popular. So uh, I'm very happy you created this and I think it's uh, it will be groundbreaking, but is the simulation theory something you've been interested in or is it something that kind of came up recently? Well, it isn't necessarily something that, um, uh, something that, I was, I, I didn't get there via my own sort of personal belief system, right? I didn't um, one day start start to think that perhaps I was in a simulation so much as came, I became aware of the fact that simulation theory was more than a science fiction idea. Because when I first heard about it, it was actually while I was working on um, The Nightmare, that, you know, it's a film about, you know, people who are experiencing sleep paralysis, and they often see you know, they see these sort of, um, they often sort of ghost-like, shadow-like phantasms when they're immobilized in bed on sort of the, the verge of, of waking and sleeping. And one of the people sort of off screen, off camera, told me that what he thought that he was seeing in those moments in that, in that state of consciousness was uh, people on the other side of the simulation, right? Say the programmers, the operators, however you want to, however you want to consider them. And, you know, I think he introduced it by, you know, you know, simulation theory, right? And I knew the words and I think I, and I was in, in, and I had an idea of what they meant when you put them together, but I hadn't necessarily heard of it. Certainly haven't heard of it outside of 
you know, science fiction, the matrix existence, you know, world on a wire even, but, you know, I very quickly became very interested. Right. And I became aware of Nick Bostrom's paper and I wasn't necessarily sure that it was going to be, you know, the subject of the next film right away, but it became something that I kept track of. And I would notice when one element after another, after another became, you know, increasingly mainstream when they would break through, you know, that certainly that there's a milestones when Elon Musk spoke about it at that conference. And I'd say another one was sort of the popularity of uh, Mandela effects. Mm, And perhaps another one, you know, would be, you know, the glitch uh, Reddit thread where people would talk about their own, you know, unusual experiences they had that left that in their wake made them think that, you know, that had, that they had seen evidence of the simulation, Um, you know, and there was more, I mean, there was an article in the New Yorker about this open world video game where the programmers of the game were sort of using natural algorithms in order to create the flora and fauna of virtual planets. And, you know, that really spoke to me as, you know, sort of there's that phrase, you know, as above, so below, right? That if we can use those algorithms in a world that we create, you know, does it stand to reason that someone else used them in the world um, above us? So at a certain point, my biggest worry about the movie is exactly as you said, you know, that there could be thousands of these, that somebody would beat me to it and that, you know, my movie would be old news before it was even finished. Yeah, and uh, uh, you just put a whole bunch of uh, excellent evidence. And uh, this might be a little bit more of a speech, but I'm trying to figure out, or I was thinking today, why is simulation theory, as you mentioned, uh, it's scientific, it's in uh, science fiction, it's part of uh, you know our mythology with the matrix. We all use those common matrix uh, phrases every day in our daily lives. And... Um, but I was thinking in your documentary, you mentioned uh, the the first matrix, which matrix, which was Plato's cave, the shadows, the cave, and all that. And then centuries later, the Gnostics really upgraded it or rebooted it. Plato's cave was like alien, and uh, the, the the Gnostics were like aliens. You know, they just blew it up with levels of these programmer angels creating this code to, to this fake world to keep us trapped. At the same time, in the East, you know, that idea has been played with for centuries. But the Gnostics basically got squashed. The idea sort of wasn't there. The simulation, as you mentioned, Descartes thought about you know, maybe there's this demiurge or devil that's keeping my brain somewhere and everything is an illusion. But it never really caught on that much in the West until the until in the present. And I think of individuals like Vance, you and I, we all grew up with Star Trek, Twilight Zone, Philip K. Dick, those cool pulpy uh, 70 sci-fi shows. And this idea of the simulation really started catching on and of course philip k dick really uh took it to the mainstream consciousness and again it's become scientifically uh popular and i'm wondering why so the simple question is 
why and i was thinking maybe it was a psychedelic movement maybe it was just guys like us in a room smoking a joint speculating on reality and going hey this universe is kind of fake what do you think rodney <laughs> well it's a big question and you know i think when when, when you mentioned that sort of dorm room you know kind of stoner philosophy you know i know certainly i've been kind of playing in that sandbox since 237 and one of the moments you know in sort of a previous film that kind of lit this fire for me you know because it, it is that scene in animal house right where the otter donald sutherland are saying well man you're saying that <laughs> one tiny molecule in my thumbnail could be a whole universe or well our whole universe could be one molecule, and it's, it's played as a joke but it's a conversation that i really enjoy as well right um you know and i've seen you know some people um maybe taking critical shots at some of these projects and comparing it to, you know, dorm room philosophy or even that scene in Animal House. <laughs> and I've got no problem with it because I love those conversations and I love that. And I love that scene, you know, thinking about, you know, other explanations for you know, sort of the popularization of simulation theory. I don't know that I've ever associated it with, you know, with the psychedelic movement, though I can totally see the connection as you mentioned it. You know, I know one thing, you know, I spend way too much time on Twitter and most of the offhand to the simulation that I see there are they use it as a joke for any time something in reality is too absurd to be true. You know, like there was um, I think someone was comparing with the senator um, or congressman, um, I think Tom Cotton. Um, you know, and, and saying like his name his name is as close as you could get to Jim Crow without the simulation collapsing upon itself. <laughs> and it's and, and it's always that kind of thing, right? That, you know, they say this name is too on the nose. This, this event that just happened is too absurd that the only explanation, you know, is, is that we're living in, in a simulation. And in fact, you know, when I was talking to Nick Bostrom about it and I was, you know, trying to hit him up from, from different angles, you know, and he's, you know, and he told me that people are often sending either very strange or, or sending him stories of either absurdities like, like, like those that I've mentioned, you know, or, you know, God, you don't have to look, you know, too far back, you know, through the news to see absurd events, <laughs> you know, having actually happened, yeah. but, you know, or just very bizarre coincidences. And, you know, for good or for bad, he didn't see those as terribly persuasive evidence that we're living in a simulation, though I often see it anecdotally used again and again. And I think maybe there's something comforting in saying, well, you know, this insane thing that just happened is proof that we're in a simulation and therefore maybe it's not that, you know, it's not that important. And even this world isn't that important and we can laugh off the absurdity that they can that it can be used you know in some way as kind of a safety valve the idea that we're it's only a simulation so don't get too bent out of shape about <laughs> about everything that's going on yeah but uh, at the same time i was reading a uh, a review of your film on vulture magazine last night it was a good review but it's the, the the writer said, well, why is Rodney looking too deeply? Human beings just do crazy scene to, uh, things sometimes. And then I was like, 
but that's the whole point because uh, we're trying to find out why humans and this world really sometimes just doesn't make sense. Like Morpheus tells Neo, you know, there's something wrong with the world. Uh, it's driving you mad, like a, oh, sorry, like a splinter in your head driving you mad or something like that. And we also live in an era where obviously our, our governments, our businesses, uh, our educational institutions have either failed us or we have so much information we see their shortcomings. So, and in, in science and content is just flooding us. So in a way, it almost makes sense to actually question reality, don't you think? I mean, it seems like the perfect time to do it. <laughs> it is absurd, a lot of things out there. I guess, but... You know, when, when, if I'm going to take those sort of ideas of these these news these these events in the in the news are too absurd to be real, seriously, you know, it, well, it just raises the question: Well, why? I mean, you ever promised that you know reality was going to be you know sober and predictable? <laughs> well, I mean, we had a uh, reality TV show host become our president. I mean, you know, it's almost like. We got Hollywood, we got absurd, and things just seem to be, yeah, well, well, it's easy to question. I mean, I'm not even talking about yeah. the, the, the sober science from Elon yeah, sure. Musk and Neil deGrasse Tyson and all those other guys. Well, in, I mean, I, in, in, it's funny because, I mean, when, when, you look at, when, when you look at the former president, you know, as, you know, perhaps evidence I don't know that it sounds like to, to, to my mind, it wouldn't be, he, he's not evidence so much in a simulation, but as in, you know, the world is a piece of fiction mm. that as he was introduced as a character long enough ago and in sort in, 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 in these different contexts that it felt like he was a recurring character who was going to have a larger role as the narrative went by. And even like reading Philip, there's a, there's a printed version of that Philip K. Dick speech um, in, a, in, in a collection of his nonfiction writings. Um, you know, if this world, if you think this world is bad, you should see some of the others. And, you know, first I was, I, I've always been amazed that he talked about us. He talked about the world as a digital computer generated uh, reality, considering what computers were like back then, you know, that they were, you know, wheels of magnetic tape and lights blinking off and on and punch cards and maybe at the height of, you know, towards the end of the 70s, you know, Pong or Space War. Because um, in other elements that he, in, in other parts of the essay, to me, it sounds like he's speaking it, the world as much about, you know, that the, that the creator as a writer more than a computer programmer and that the world as a book that is being revised more than like a video game that's getting played or upgraded, you know? And I think maybe some of those, that's too much of a coincidence to be believable. To me, that sounds more like we're talking about a piece of fiction than we're talking about a simulation. But of course, um, you know, when people talk about the world being a simulation, you know, that's just the, that inspires, you know, just a dozen questions about, well, what you know? What does that mean? What it, what's the purpose of the simulation, and 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 what are the rules? Because if this is a a test laboratory, you know, some kind of simulation, it's much different than if it's a playground or a museum exhibit. <laughs> yeah, definitely a possibility Dick had, and 
But what I found very intriguing is one of your uh, guests or individuals who you interviewed, he talked about uh, how the simulation theory really also made sense today because it's a perfect blend of science and religion. In other words, it's mathematically sound. You can make a case for it. You can, it can be logical. At the same time, it, it answers the big questions that religion has kind of failed, right? Where do we come from? What's beyond this material world? Uh, what's our purpose? So it is, uh, you can understand how it can be very intriguing and how many people would really embrace it. Yeah, well, I remember that moment even when I was first talking to him. I believe that's Jesse Orion who mm -hmm. was who went down that path. And, you know, this is probably no surprise to you based on, you know, the subject of this podcast. But to me, when I started talking to people, I was genuinely surprised at how quickly things, religious ideas started to emerge in any kind of in-depth, you know, conversation about um, the simulation and, you know, when you say it's the blend of religion and technology or even like, cause there's that moment, you know, towards the end after that um, car wreck where, you know, Alex was left thinking there's gotta be, you know, someone's finger on the scale and offhand, I'm not, you know, cause I, I sometimes when I'm thinking about these conversations, I can remember beyond the movie to other parts of our conversation. And I'm not sure if it's still in the movie, the moment where he says, like, I don't believe in Jesus and I don't think that he would have intervened to save my life. Therefore, I'm looking for another, you know, yeah. person out there who would have intervened on my behalf, right? So in some ways it can also, you know, I think you can look at simulation theory as a religion for people who aren't comfortable with traditional religions. You know, my mom watched the movie and she didn't engage with it too directly besides, you know, seeing my name on the credits and, <laughs> you know, and, and my little boy, you know, on screen for a second. But, you know, when I was trying to talk with her about you know, some of the ideas, that moment of that car wreck came up and, you know, she said, well, I know I have a guardian angel, <laughs> you know, who has protected me time and time again. You know, and I'm like, he's, you know, so she's uh, on some way not taking these people very seriously, but, you know, they're coming up with an answer to the same question that she's asked. And their answer is just adjacent, you know, to hers. It's just, you know, if it's a video game character wearing a different skin. Yeah, indeed. And there's so many examples in your movie, these individuals who think, again, there's some uh, grand drama in the simulation. And again, it's very much... Uh, like a religion and i love how uh you have uh, the interviews some of your guests have avatars but all the interviews have this sort of uh, zoom skype gritty style is this something you did before the pandemic and the lockdowns or during well we did the interviews all in um 2019 you know, wow, so, so that's pretty present because, yeah, it's like the news media, late night, they all turn the same way your movie did. Exactly. You know, the hosts are kind of like, you know, you and your son. And wow, that's very prescient of you. Yeah, well, you know, it's not the first time that I've fallen into my own rabbit hole, right, where I'm doing these interviews in this style, you know, as part of the movie, both to save money, but also, you know, to put the whole world, the whole movie through the world of sort of digital communications and, and digital intermediaries. Um, you know, but then I found my, you know, 
I found myself, you know, for the next year, like we're doing now, speaking entirely in these, you know, web video chats, these Zooms, these Skypes, you know, and everybody else is looking through them too. And, um, you know, it does make the movie feel, you know, more, you know, maybe, you know, slightly more current, you know, at some insanely horrific price. But, you know, these sorts of, you know, connection, these sort of, I don't know, coincidences seem to have a way of happening around these projects. Yeah, it was, uh, and even the shots of, uh, you're showing maps and shots, and I see like Google Earth at the bottom, and I'm just like, it's always, I've got this sense I'm in a simulation, that I'm not going to be allowed to breathe and see the real world in your movie, so I like that kind of claustrophobia you present, like, always reminding the audience, you're in a simulation. Yeah, I kind of overthink that stuff. But the the Google Earth thing was something, you know, at one point we were hoping to do more with it, right? That, like, again, the scene in Mexico, I was hoping to actually set the animation in the in the Google Earth view of that mountain in Cuernavaca. But, you know, I think it was William Gibson who said that, you know, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And the same is true for Google Earth, which is in you know major american cities you know every corner every street is built out in three-dimensional you know fidelity but you get to a a smaller city in mexico and that's just a flat satellite photo um but i found found google earth to be a really interesting metaphor um you know for the simulation too that you know sometimes there are ideas that i want to get in the movie and nobody i interview says them and i'm trying to kind of suggest them, you know, through, you know, the video on on the video track, because, you know, I I see the three-dimensional Google Earth where you can move through city streets and there's representations of every building. And you can imagine as time goes on that those are going to get more and more accurate. And at a certain point, they'll become live video. And, you know, there's that moment in, I think it's Terminator 2, where like they go to Skynet and they can kind of see the building blocks for what is going to be the Terminators that, you know, I look around and sometimes I see things that I feel like, well, this could be a building block for the simulation, Google Earth being, you know, a major one. But even like there's a Spider-Man PS4 game where they built out the entire city of New York that you can roam through in characters and at a level of detail beyond Google Earth. And, you know, because there's the notion, right, that, one idea, you know, simulation theory is that the real world is our future, you know, and that the people out there have simulated, you know, their past, but that suggests that we can see that, you know, we'll be building our own simulation at a certain point, 10, 20, 50, a hundred, a thousand years in the future so that we can see the pieces coming together, you know, around us. Um, you know, I also see, I don't know, I can go on and on about Google earth, but the other comparison, you know, that I, that I like to think about with it is, um, that Borgia story on exactitude and science, you know, the map and the territory that Google earth is a one-to-one map of the entire world (laughs) and it's not on paper and you need the special viewer to see it. But, you know, we move through it, you know, when you're driving just uh, uh, simultaneously to moving through to the real world. 
Yeah, Borges definitely wrote some very simulation Gnostic fiction. Uh, incredible writer, too, ahead of his times. Uh, Vince, uh, what do you think? Uh, what did you think of the movie and any questions for Rodney? Yeah, I, I thought the movie was great. And um, it was a very solid introduction to people who may have heard about the you know simulation hypothesis um, uh, to bring them up to speed to it. And um, I noticed those things that you did to augment what the um, interviewees were saying. And uh, yeah, I, I, I've thought about the simulation things for a long time. And uh, being an operating system programmer years ago in the 70s, yeah. I said, God does his will, or a will in the universe by um, causing an interrupt, causing the whole world to freeze. And then he rearranges things. And then he dismisses the interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wrote a whole thing in the computer center in my college, how God does his will in the world. So it, uh, my, my thoughts on that. On that. And then yeah. I had the uh, thing with the helmet with the two cameras on it. This is in the 70s now. I said, pretty soon people have helmets and things over their eyes with cameras, and then they'll see what they want to see. And that's yeah. No, I, 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 I totally imagine. Um, that, do you know the um, Godard movie, Alphaville? Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, though. Yeah, well, for yeah. me, it's a, uh, you know, it, it's one of my favorites of his, you know, and it takes place, I don't know, a thousand years in the future on another planet. But he just filmed it in, I think, Berlin in the late 60s. And they're just driving on, in cars and going up elevators and office buildings. They're slightly futuristic, sort of modernist architecture. But yeah, I like to look at that and think of that. It really that it's not that he's not doing some conceptual game comparing Berlin to the future, but so much as it's a real science fiction movie, and um, Lenny Koshin is just someone who's nostalgic for Europe in the '60s. So on his you know contact lenses, the augmented reality that he's experiencing is '60s Europe mapped over whatever is the real architecture on that other planet in the future. <laughs> and now we have it, right? Google Glass, although it didn't do too well commercially. Yeah, yeah. But it's coming, virtual reality. Um, do you think, um, uh, do you have any particular uh, evidence in mind that to you strongly suggests that we are in some kind of simulation, something that you've seen, noticed? I don't know that I have, right? You know, and, you know, I'm still... Um, for lack of a better word, agnostic about the idea <laughs> that I see it as an idea that I can neither prove nor disprove in that, but that people who are, you know, smarter than me, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elon Musk, et cetera, et cetera, take it very seriously. Um, you know, and I can kind of live with that ambiguity. Um, you know, of course, you know, I think there's also the fact that, you know, unless you're someone who has some plan for breaking out of the simulation, you know, whether it's through quantum mechanics or I don't know, some kind of really advanced meditation that in some ways it's, um, it's, it, it's a very useful metaphor, but, you know, you still have to deal with this world the way you did before. Um, you know, in, 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 right. some, in some ways it's, it's, it's beside the point. Like PKD said, uh, you know, um, whenever you stop, whenever you stop believing something, it's still there. That's reality. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Paraphrased. How about the idea of nested simulations? Like if we're being simulated, maybe somebody's simulating the simulators. Yeah, no, exactly. There's, well, there, that's, I think what Musk was getting to in that conference when he said the idea that we're in base reality, 
right? That mm. there can be a simulation in a simulation in a simulation. I know I had the notion, you know, I've done a fair amount of computer animation and one of the what one of the things I'm very familiar with as far as computer processing power is that when there's sort of a a nested element in an animation shot, you know, there's a you know, th- there's a animation in an animation in an animation that that could you know causes a huge drain on the processor. And there's even that Rick and Morty episode where <laughs> they try to overwhelm the process. They overwhelm the processor, the simulation therein by asking for the crowd to do increasingly specific things that, you know, I had the notion that let's say we're in the first level of simulation that, uh, you know, that outside of this is just the real, is just the, the real world that when we hit the point of the future, you know, where the simulation is created, let's say it's in the year, you know, 2,500 that when you turn that on, you can imagine the lights in the sky, maybe flickering, but they hold, <laughs> right? But then it's within that universe, when they get to the year 2,500 and turn their computer on, the lights, you know, go off for a second and come back on. And that you could hit the point where you would crash, you you would turn on the, you, you would start your process, you would start the simulation and crash the computer that you're in and therefore you know, it's dangerous to build a simulation. Uh, cease to a, exist. <laughs> well, I was, but I was, I was trying to get, you know, Nick Bostrom to comment on that because I, I wanted to get that idea, which I thought was kind of a fun, if somewhat scary idea, into the film, the danger of building a simulation and crashing the computer that, that your universe is running on. And he didn't exactly want to go there. I mean, one of the things he said was, well, if you're monitoring this simulation on a computer screen, the simulation outside of you doesn't need to run that whole simulation inside. It could just show you whatever one corner of the simulation mm-hmm. you've got on your screen that it could, yeah, you know, that it could be cheating. Um, of course, that also gets into the idea of well, how how built out you know is the simulation you know, and if is the world is is the world built out all around us, or you know, are are, are these one person? simulators in which case they only need to build what's exactly around you know that that particular individual at that particular time like philip k dick says in the uh, adjustment zone right the um what was it the um the Adjustment Bureau was the movie. I can't remember the name of the short story, but um they didn't have to build out the parts where people didn't go um, yeah. well, and I remember having ideas before I knew the sim uh, before I had heard of the simulation theory, you know just sort of wander around late night on a college campus with the friends sort of thinking they would never expect us to go back behind this building that we have no business going back behind, you know, let's go see if there's anything out there. I've done Um, that too. The crew would have to very quickly cobble something together. Like the Truman show, you know, when he sees the break room accidentally. Of course they could pause the simulation and then fix it up before you got there. See, that's the advantage. Well, yeah. Well, that, well, you know, and you you think of those sort of computer tools, which if a person was able to do it, it would really be a godlike power, even just the power to undo. Wow. Oh boy. Yeah. Again, we Gen Xers did smoke too much pot and had too much time on our hands and walked around with our buddies. Uh, and it seems 
uh, one of the the cornerstones of the framework is always is uh, Philip K. Dix, and now because of YouTube, his uh, infamous speech at Metz, France, in 1977. And don't you think it's just an, an incredible uh, scene that uh, I don't? It's hard to explain, but. It, he brought it up, but the looks on the people's faces then are just precious, don't you think, Rodney? Well, you They're know, I love those like, audience. <laughs> I, I love those audience shots. Um, you know, there's like these two. There's these two women wearing kind of athletic gear, and that one, you know, kind of hippie guy in the yellow love shirt, who are all trying, <laughs> who, are, who are all trying to get their heads around uh, this speech, which, you know, I guess they were expecting him to talk about the the state of the art of science fiction because it was a it was a science fiction convention. And right. like he said that he'd just seen Star Wars the night before, right? So they were probably expecting to hear more <laughs> more about that. Yeah, and he just comes up, we are living in a simulated reality. And he just I mean, he just lays it all on the table. It's and incredible. It, was, like, it took me a couple of listens to, you know, like I, I had a, a VHS of the, of the entire speech, although it's missing the very end. Um, and in a way, it was funny, like we were playing with, you know, even using more of it in the movie before, you know, whatever made it into the final cut. And just by sort of cutting away to B-roll helped me understand what he was saying, because some of it, you know, was really complicated, you know, and really kind of convoluted. Um, so I can imagine what it was like to hear it translated live, you know, all at once. Oh, yeah. It's uh, and. Again, you wonder where the Wachowskis got their ideas for the Matrix. It's almost like it's all there in one speech. Uh, and it must be nice. I mean, I loved our mutual friend, Eric Davis, when he talks about Philip K. Dick. It's like he just makes perfect sense of him. And uh, uh, what what was the process of getting Eric in your movie? Well, that came through my friend Tim Kirk. That Tim um, you know, produced 237, and he was... He's been, you know, part of all of these projects, especially during the, he, he, he helps me do a lot of the research. He's a writer, really talented guy. And with, at a certain point, I forget when he's, he has, he's friends with Eric and I'm not quite sure how he knows him, but you no, know, he reached out um, for me to, mostly I was going to talk to him about Philip K. Dick, but of course, Eric being Eric, you know, he had relevant thoughts about Everybody. so much of this. Yeah. And he was, and, and I remember it was important to him when I first reached out to him that, you know, he wanted to make sure that we talk about the fact that in some ways, simulation theory, you know, is the, is a contemporary technologically based version of much older ideas and traditions. Oh yeah. He's certainly right. Um, one second here and uh, as your movie goes it starts out with uh, a lot of energy and the guests are talking about their lives there's, there's a lot of poignant stuff of course through the movie as you're exploring these ideas and how it's affected people and then towards the second part i there's a couple of very i don't i don't want to say touching emotional stories the first one is the the guy who hijacked the commercial airline and i had read this story in the news right but when i saw your documentary i was really shocked that he took that plane and just he flew it based on a video game that he knew well he based on a flight simulator mm. you know and you know i don't know 
if you've looked at those flight simulator games, but I would call them more than games, right? That the level of yeah. technology there is that it's not crazy that someone who got good at, you know, a, a flight simulator on an Xbox or PS5 or whatever, PS4 or whatever system it was running on, that the controls are fairly accurate to, you know, um, you know, contemporary planes is the way I understand. And in a way that, like, I think we, we, we looked at one and kind of poked around to the controls that it wasn't necessarily fun to play the game as a, as a, as a part time, as a beginner, just looking to like zip around the sky that you really, it really got into the nuts and bolts of, um, you know, flying and, you know, I think in one way, you know, that sort of gets to the fact that, you know, these games are more than games now, you know, and my son plays, you know, plays a lot of them and there are games and activities that he participates in, but there are also places that he goes to meet his friends, right? And, you know, whether it's Fortnite or Minecraft or, you know, or a Rec Room or, or other games, the social component is as much a part of it as anything that, you know, again, uh, just the phrase game doesn't necessarily communicate, you know, what kind of experiences some of these things are. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I agree. Three small kids and they all play Roblox and yeah, yeah. this is, a, they actually live in a house in one of the games, all three of them, they watch each other's backs and, the five-year-old will come up to me and say, dad, you're a noob. Come on, dude. You know, she'll use the language of this virtual reality world. And, uh, I have to follow her rules. But, yeah. Well, you know, and that's, that's the scene in, you know, in the movie, right. Where Chris Ware is talking about, you know, his daughter who's sort of not, not as a teenager is nostalgically visiting mm -hmm. the worlds that she built as a kid. And he's going back there. Right. And being able to sort of feel like you're physically inhabiting a space that you're now almost grown kid made as a small child mm -hmm. is like a kind of nostalgia that's so much more powerful than I don't know, ever used to, you know, that ever existed before, you know, and even, you know, within the movie, the, the um, Minecraft sequences, like my son built that aqueduct that you see at the beginning and then, yeah. My animation director, Sid Garen, who's one of my, my oldest friends and collaborators, his sons did the animation and the camera work within Minecraft, moving through the aqueduct that he built. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I love that. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible what they're doing. I'll have to visit my uh, daughter's house. I mean, my nine-year-old daughter, she's already creating entire <laughs> worlds and Roblox stuff that it's beyond me how she can code this stuff. And it's second yeah. nature. But it, even in that scene, it was, re again, it was poignant uh, because the individual, he stole the airplane and he's like, you know, Oh, I just learned it from a video game. He's talking, and then he just crashed it on purpose. Yeah, well, learn how to he, land. He oh, really we forgot that. He didn't know how to land. But I mean, that almost feels like when Jesse was telling that story to make the point about, you know, it's that simulation theory can be dangerous, right? That if you live your life like this is a video game, you know, you're probably going to make, let's say, a lot of decisions based on maybe short term concerns. And you know, if that, you know, I don't know too much more about that case than what's discussed in the movie, but if you're using it 
you know, anecdotally, you know, there's the idea that, well, you, you come into this world, see it like a game, and it's like, what attractions do you, you go to, right? You're at Disneyland, you want to go on Space Mountain. And he's like, I want to fly a plane. And based on where I am in my life, you know, he was like a maintenance crew. I'm never going to be able to pilot a large, you know, plane like this. So he just broke in, you know, and just hearing this voice, I mean, he just sounded, sounded like a good natured guy. You just want to happy, you know, is, you know, that, that, that kind of cut through me. There, there's a lot of tragedy there. Um, and I think it was also maybe, you know, accented by the music that Jonathan Snipes created for it. Yeah. It's, um, now he made his own version with these digitally synthesized voices of a, I forget what the song is called. It's like the long, long journey, long night's journey, something like that. Um, which is sort of a funereal song about a hundred years old. And it's just a beautiful piece of music that at once is kind of transcendent, but you know, also kind of mournful. Wow. And uh, yeah, the, the whole idea of, uh, who knows if we're in a simulation, but we might lose ourselves in a smaller simulation. Is uh, we were just talking about, like the individual uh, was his name Joshua Cook, the 2003 Matrix murderer oh, yeah. who thought he was in the Matrix and he ended up killing his parents to see if there was a Matrix. That was really powerful. And you interviewed him. Yeah, I talked to him on the phone. I'm actually no. I just talked to him over the weekend. Um, oh yeah, wow. Happily enough, you know, everybody in, you know, in inside there, you know, most of them were able to get, you know, vaccinated because when I talked to him earlier, you know, after when COVID was first hitting, you know, there, um, it didn't seem like they were, like they had the most efficient, you know, kind of protections, but, mm -hmm. you know, they all were able to, you know, and there were these incentives about, you know, you get vaccinated and <laughs> you get extra meal rations or what have you. Um, so, um, you know, I talked to him over the phone and, you know, he was, uh, you know, as he talks about in the movie, I mean, he was kind of in a place in his life where like, he's written a book, you know, and he's trying to reach out to, you know, troubled kids so that they don't make the, the, the same mistakes that he did, you know, and his story is really complicated. You know, he even uses the phrase, um, a perfect storm right? That there were like a half a dozen variables that led him to where he was. And if they didn't all break that same way, you know, he probably wouldn't be there. Yeah, it's it's very sad. I mean, uh, he probably had mental disease, poor thing was bullied, his parents uh, weren't perfect with him. Like you said, he was uh, felt lost and just got drawn into a false world. I mean, when I was young, the only warning we had was that Tom Hanks movie about Dungeons and Dragons, you know, that, right, was, a, right. that was a big warning or whatever the Christian right was telling us, but it was nothing like the... Uh, amount of information and all the stuff going on today so it's uh it was uh, very tragic um and that's the that's sort of a, a powerful point towards the end of your movie rodney and eric davis makes it and i think he hits philip k dick well because i i, I always felt even when i started reading philip k dick many years ago it wasn't so much worrying about the simulated reality whether we're in the world where the nazis won or the the americans won all these stories are really about the connection of individuals 
and empathy and how if individuals can stand together and take care of each other, it doesn't matter what the reality is out there. So I, I love that uh, ending message, one of your ending messages too, that uh, let's take care of each other. Yeah, no, Eric really put a, a great point to it. And I think so did Emily, right? Emily Pottis, yeah. you know, was sort of the person who had like, you know, an antidote to falling too down, too far down into sort of a, a rabbit hole of solipsism and disconnection, you know, of, you know, close intimate human contact can be, that can, can, um, can be the way out of some of those, uh, um, you know, dead ends. Yeah. And I think that's a, a very important message we should all have. And uh, as we get to the end, Vince, do you have any uh, last questions for Rodney? Um, yeah. What do you think the future is going to hold um, with our simulation technology and so forth? And oh, and then another one before you answer that, do you think uh, perhaps UFOs might be a little bit of an evidence that there is some higher reality, uh, you know, that's overarching our own, you know, things that don't. Yeah, well, if I'm going to tackle UFOs first, you know, I don't know what to think about them. You know, certainly it's been striking the last couple of years that, you know, we've seen those sort of military videos that have come out of like airplanes and right. chasing things. You know, I, I used to be more skeptical about them than I am now. I mean, certainly one thing I came away from, you know, after talking with people who had experienced, you know, sleep paralysis, you know, is that, you know, people see things and, you know, I don't always or hardly ever know what these things really are, but, you know, I'm coming, but, you know, I, I take most people at their word for, you know, wild, unusual um, experiences that they might have. Um, you know, as far as where the technology is heading, you know, I just got an Oculus um, this year, right? Because Sundance was um, was a virtual festival, and they had a lot of VR events. So I got I got the new Oculus in order to you know sort of experience some of them, and I'm kind of blown away at how realistic both how, how realistic and immersive the experience is and how social it can be that you know there are these one-on-one there, there are these single player experiences you know which are very which you know maybe it's a little troubling to imagine people standing in dark rooms you know <laughs> interacting with these phantoms but <laughs> i think one of my favorite things on it is a ping pong simulator. And, you know, I grew up with a ping pong table in the house, you know, so I'm very, you know, I'm not a champion player, but I'm very comfortable at the table. And it is when you're playing against, you know, an automated opponent, you know, it's, you know, you're immediately amazed at the handle that you're playing, you know, you're holding a handle. So it's very much like holding a racket and that, it it looks very much it, it looks very much like you're really playing it. They've they must have recorded the sound of a ball like in a studio like it's not a computer generated noise. It it sounds wow. authentic, and the subtle vibration the handle makes when it hits the ball mm. and the trajectory of it and how sensitive it is to a light touch versus a hard touch. To my mind, it feels incredibly accurate to the experience of the game. But when it, where it really soars is that you can, you know, play it against another, a friend of yours, 
you know, or enemy or stranger, I suppose. And, you know, when I've done it, you know, with so far the furthest studies, I've done it across the country between um, Los Angeles and Atlanta. And I want to try to do it with a friend uh, in Europe and see if the technology supports, you know, that the instantaneous latency. Yeah. You know, but, you know, forget these Zoom conversations, like the one I'm having now with you. I mean, this doesn't feel, I don't feel like I'm alone in this room, you know, talking to a screen. I feel like I'm connecting to, to, to real people, even if you're just pixels here. But this is dwarfed in its vividness and its visceral reality by, play, even though when I'm playing virtual ping pong with my friend, he's just a robot. I don't see like his real face, but we we're live talking and chatting. And it's like, we're both physically interacting and hanging out in the same space while we're, while we're talking. And it feels like such a genuine social experience. And I know that we're just at the beginning of that. Right. You know, and I don't know if, you know, based on the environmental impact or even, you know, maybe future pandemics that, you know, that's this stuff is more popular now because traveling has been hard, but it might be that traveling remains hard or becomes hard again, or it becomes too, it becomes exorbitantly expensive so that, you know, it becomes very, very rare, very, very rare. Um, if nothing else, it's, it's funny because, you know, on the one hand, I think the movie often plays as a cautionary tale about the dangers of being lost in digital worlds you know, and those in, in, in those dangers are real, but at the same time, you know, the one thing the pandemic, you know, has really, ma- has really made clear to me, both watching my son connect to his friends while playing these games or me just idly chatting about nothing while, while playing ping pong with someone across town or across the country that, you know, used responsibly, these things are amazing tools of connection. You know, it's not, it doesn't replace the in-person human connection, but it's 75%, 80% the way there, you know, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's getting close. It'll be soon like total recall. We're going to have our vacations in Mars. Well, the, you know, I, was, I, I, lo- I love total recall and I've watched it, you know, a hundred times while, 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 while working on the movie that tennis game that, you know, Sharon Stone is playing. Yeah. I don't, I, I think that's less real than the VR that I have, you know, <laughs> it, it looked, I mean, it's photographic instead of computer generated, but we've got that now, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I've got access to a virtual um, ping pong opponent and a, and a boxing opponent. There's a Creed game where, I mean, my, when I'm playing it, my fight or flight responses are totally activated <laughs> as I'm in a struggle to as I'm in a struggle to survive against, you know, Mr. T or Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> Consider this a divorce. That's yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Well, um, I saw a glitch in the Matrix on. I rent. I've watched it twice. I rented it once on Google, once on Amazon. I don't know which evil corporation to give it to, so I just split <laughs> the difference. And hopefully, oh, it because you run. could actually do it as a virtual cinema. That depending on, you could go to different different indie art house movie theaters. You can go to their websites and for future movies, oh. you can rent new releases through their websites if you don't want to. You know, if you want to throw them the 
the fee instead of Mm. Apple, Amazon, Google, whoever. <laughs> Rules of simulation right now. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I'm definitely going to do that to help, uh, you know, the, the smaller guy in the neighborhood. But uh, where else can people find out more about you? Well, you I mean, I've got a, a site that, you know, I should update more more often, RodneyAsher.com, or, you know, I'm on Twitter, and again, way too much, at Rodney underscore Asher. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, definitely follow you there. Well, uh, we are at the end. First, I'd like to say Vance, or if you are the real Vance or some uh, simulacra, thanks for being here and keeping us company, Vance. <laughs> I um, am very, 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 very happy to be here. <laughs> There's a glitch <laughs> in your programming. Awesome. Well, thanks for keeping us company. And Rodney, we really appreciate your time and you creating this uh, wonderful film that I think will have lasting impact and gets the conversation back into uh, finding out better realities. Uh, but we really appreciate you coming on Aeon Byte and discussing for your sure. documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix. Right on. It was really good to talk to you guys. Thank you. Thank you.